0: Chapter eight of Toppleton's Client This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Toppleton's Client by John Kendrick Bangs chapter eight further developments in the making of a name. You must have felt like a vest-pocket Byron to wake up and find yourself famous that way, said Toppleton. Or perhaps you found yourself infamous, eh? I don't know how it is here in England, but in America, a lawyer who'd browbeat a poor innocent litigant into a state bordering upon lunacy would be requested to move out of town. It all depends," returned the spirit. If my substitute itself had limited his browbeating to the plaintiff, it might have made the reputation which I found awaiting me upon my return to my remains one of infamy. But that was by no means the case. The judge himself succumbed to nervous prostration a week later. The jurors vanished like a pack of frightened hares immediately they were discharged and even my client shook like a leaf when he felt my eyes resting upon him. As for my own proper self, I was the worst scared man of the lot. So you see it was a sort of universal awe that was inspired by the demeanour of my body that day, and one which commanded rather than invited respect. "'Did you find your head a little stretched when you got back into yourself again, or did he break his word and refuse to let you back?' queried Toppleton. "'Oh, he kept his word that time,' replied the spirit. After the trial was over, he took a cab and drove rapidly out to Regent's Park and back, returning to my chambers about six o'clock. I was there waiting for him, ready to enter upon my usual anatomical ways once more. My client was also there, though of course unaware that I was present in spirit. I was very much amused to see how utterly unnerved poor Baskin was by the strange events of the day. Several times he muttered to himself remarks like, I didn't know he had it in him, and... If I'd thought he was that kind of a man, I'd have kept blessed clear of him. I wonder what he'll charge. And then every time there was a step or noise of any kind out in the corridor, he would straighten up nervously, and stare at the door in a tense sort of fashion, which showed that he dreaded meeting me. Once he put his hand in his pocket, and pulled out a big dueling pistol, which I was alarmed to note was loaded to the muzzle. It was evident that the awe which my new self had inspired in him amounted to positive fear. "'That dueling pistol put an end to my enjoyment of the situation,' continued the spirit. "'I was afraid he might be goaded into discharging a load of cold lead into my body. Of course I didn't care to have that happen, and under the agitation of the moment I uttered an ejaculation of consternation. I never saw in all my experience a man so thoroughly frightened as Baskin's was, when the sound for which he could not account greeted his ear. He went on his knees and shook like a leaf, clasping his hands as if in prayer before his face which turned a blue-white the pistol fell from his hands to the floor and as it did so the door opened and i saw myself standing on the sill haggard of face but not worn of spirit for the supernatural brilliance of my eye as it caught sight of the pistol and realized at a flash just what the situation was showed that the soul within was still unwearied by its effort then added the spirit his voice husky with the remembrance of his dishonour. Came an interview that makes me blush, even though I have no cheek on which to display that manifestation of shame. My body sprang forward as the pistol met my eye, and, snatching the weapon from the floor, flung it out through the window into the court where it exploded, the jar of contact with the stone walk being sufficient to discharge it. As the sharp report of the pistol echoed through the court, my client threw himself flat on his face and prostrate there at my feet began to utter a string of incoherent lamentations and despairing requests for mercy at my hands which were painful to hear and i judged from what meaning i could patch together from his jumble of words that he deemed me an emissary of satan and i think he was right what does this mean queried the fiend within me murder or suicide if you contemplated suicide i forgive you if murder <sighs> i was afraid gasped my unhappy client. "'Your power was so terrible, the effect of your words so awful that I—' "'Ah!' interrupted the fiend. "'I see. It was murder you were prepared to do, in case we should not agree, and the power of my eye should chance to be exerted to win you from your determination, whatever it may have been.' "'No! Not that! Not that!' shrieked my client. "'It was but the natural instinct of self-preservation that led me to—' "'You weaken your case by your loquacity, my friend,' said the fiend. "'You suspected me of contemplating some dishonourable or cowardly act. "'And for that reason you entered the office of him who has saved your good name and your purse alike "'from them who would have robbed you of both, having so little sense of gratitude "'that you bring with you an instrument of death. "'Very well, let it be so. I am satisfied if you are.' I might do that to you now, which would place you in far worse a state than your poor brother is in. If you had your pistol in your hand, aimed at my heart, you would still be powerless to do me an injury, for with one glance of my eye I could force you to turn the muzzle to your own head, and with another compel you to empty its leaden load into your own brains. Your suspicions are insulting, but an insult from one of your calibre to one of mine is as the sting of a fly to the elephant. I pass it over and charge it on the bill. Ten thousand pounds for trying the case two thousand five hundred for accepting your insult, two thousand five hundred for condoning it, and in one hour must this money be in my hands with a letter, a letter written and signed by you, expressing your satisfaction with the manner of my conducting the case, and concluding with an allusion to your surprise that my charge is so moderate. "'And if I refuse to submit to this outrage?' queried my client, lashed into a show of courage which he really did not feel." "'You leave this room a raving maniac, for I have the power to make you so,' I was appalled to hear myself reply. "'And do you mean to tell me,' said Hopkins, his bosom heaving with indignation, "'that you sat there like a zero on a pedestal, and kept silent with this blackmailing infamy going on under your very eyes?' "'I was speechless with rage,' returned the spirit, "'or I should have interfered. Before I could recover my composure, the letter had been written and the money paid.' for my clients still had the sixty thousand pounds in their original form, in the one-thousand-pound bank-notes. The struggle he went through was terrible to witness, and as the notes passed from his hands into mine, he sighed like one who was heartbroken. The fiend dictated the letter, commending my efforts, and expressing surprise that the amount asked for my services was so moderate. Then he opened the door and ushered the unfortunate victim out. As the latter left the room, the fiend whispered to him in withering tones, to beware of his vengeance if he ever attempted to reveal what had passed since he entered the room. For, said he, if you are not careful, it matters not in what part of this or any other world you may be. You must for ever be within my reach, and forever subject to the consequences of my resentment. Then, said the spirit, he slammed the door violently, and turned and fixed my eyes upon the corner wherein I sat, aghast, "'with the mortification of having my name identified in any man's mind "'with such a diabolical act as that I had just witnessed. "'Now,' he said, "'you may have this carcass of yours back, and welcome. "'It's lucky for you I have the power I have. "'If I hadn't, your body would be riddled with bullets within twenty-four hours.' "'Bah!' I replied. "'That man had no more intention of using that pistol without provocation than I have. "'And considering the terror with which you have managed to inspire everyone "'with whom you have come in contact to-day,' I don't wonder he came armed.' "'I never thought of that,' said my substitute, "'though what you say about everybody's terror is true. You might apply it even more broadly than you do, because as I drove down the Strand just now, even the omnibus horses shied, and the driver of my cab had all he could do to keep his ramshackle steed from running away. But hurry up and get ready to relieve me of this mortal incubus of yours, and take your money. It's a nice little sum, eh?' "'Magnificent,' I returned.' "'and when you and I have changed places, I am going to return all but five hundred pounds "'to that poor fellow you have just robbed, in such a conscienceless fashion.' "'The moment I said this,' said the spirit, I regretted it, for he grasped the money with my right hand, and holding it over the fire, which was blazing merrily in the grate, he said, "'My friend, I exact from you an oath that you will not return one penny of this sum to Mr. Baskins. "'If you refuse, I shall cast every one of these bank-notes into that fire.' nor shall I admit you once more to your form until the very ashes of those notes have disappeared into the air.' "'Now what could I do under the circumstances, Toppleton?' asked the spirit earnestly. "'Could I do anything but swear to what he asked?' "'Yes,' returned Hopkins, "'you could. I don't believe so vile a creature as he could have distinguished between a Bible and a city directory. I'd have taken the oath on the city directory.' "'Alas!' said the spirit sadly and with such evident sincerity that it jostled the Aunt Sally from the chair to the floor. As I said to you before, I am only an enduring Briton, where you have the inventive genius of the Yankee. I never thought of the substitution of the Directory for the Bible, and the consequent elimination of moral responsibility from the oath. I simply swore as he desired me to, and in an hour I was alone in my office, the occupant of a frame so exhausted that I could scarcely lift my head, and in my pockets were those miserable bank-notes, more burning to my conscience than had they been sovereign for sovereign in gold coin hot from the mint. "'Of course,' suggested Hopkins, "'you devoted them to the cause of charity, subscribed all but your just due to the house for imbeciles in which that wronged unfortunate the plaintiff was incarcerated.' "'I intended something of the sort,' returned the spirit, extricating himself from the head of Aunt Sally, and ensconcing himself on the paperweight on Hopkins' desk. "'But I didn't have time.' You see, immediately after the trial, a perfect avalanche of litigants from other offices slid into mine, and within a week I was so overwhelmed with business that I had to hire the rest of this floor here to find room for my papers. It was painful to me, too, to observe that those who had heard of my fame but who had never seen me were manifestly disappointed when taking their departure at the close of a first interview at having found me so much less great than they had been led to believe by the public estimate of my abilities. Nevertheless, cases of the most intricate sort were fairly dumped into my hands by the cart-load, and, worst of all, I found that eminence brought with it other responsibilities which I was ill prepared to meet. I was constantly in receipt of requests to lecture on subjects of a variety that would have appalled the fiend himself, and, worse than all, I was called into consultation by the Crown in certain litigation of international importance. For a time I tried to go it alone, and by assiduous devotion to study, to fit myself for the responsibilities which my fame had brought me. But it was impossible. I broke down in less than a month. But having tasted the joys of prominence, I was not strong enough to resist the temptation to prolong it indefinitely. And without thinking of the means, I committed myself to certain undertakings which were utterly beyond my intellectual strength to accomplish. And then, when brought face to face with failure and disgrace, there was but one thing left for me to do, and that I did i summoned the fiend the mere expression of a desire to see him was sufficient to bring him into my presence and time and time again did i subject my poor body for ambition's sake to the dreadful interchange of spirits from without i watched my development from mediocrity to fame with a joyous interest not unmixed however with regret for at such moments as were permitted me to enjoy the undivided possession of myself I could not but feel conscious of a diminution of physical strength which detracted materially from my happiness. And yet when day after day I saw my name in print, and noted that I was regarded as one of the most marvellous intellectual products of the day, I could not bring myself to the point where I could renounce everything I had gained, and withdraw to the contented life of the recluse. Let a man once taste a living immortality, Hopkins, and I care not how strong his character may be he would part with all that he holds most dear, sooner than he would renounce that. And so it went on for a full year. I became the leading light of the English bar. I astonished the world as a public orator. So potent were my arguments that in court or on the hustings none were able to resist me. At public dinners I was the speaker who alone could hold the feasters when the seductions of the wine-cup awaited the cessation of my eloquence had i been able to extend the hours of my days from twenty-four to ten times twenty-four i could not have responded to all the calls that were made upon my time then as if to show the world that one profession was too small to hold the boundless qualities of my genius i startled the english reading public with a novel the depth and power of which stirred the soul of the most blasé of novel readers and the presses of my publisher were taxed to the utmost to supply the demand for my work then came a volume of poems which caused my name to be mentioned as a possible successor to the laureateship then a series of essays on scientific and philosophical subjects which were nearly my undoing since my omniscient self as i came to call the fiend who was responsible for my greatness was absent upon one occasion when i was called upon unexpectedly to receive a delegation of scottish scientists who had travelled from edinburgh to london to consult with me in regard to certain propositions advanced in my book what they thought of me heaven only knows you see hopkins as far as my original self was concerned there wasn't an atom of scientific knowledge in my body and to tell you the truth i hadn't even read my book concerning which these unwelcome greybeards had come from edinburgh to speak (laughs) i should like to have been on hand to hear you said hopkins with a laugh you must have felt like damocles i was worse off than damocles he was face to face with nothing but death I was having a tete-a-tete with dishonour. Damocles had a sword suspended over his head, held in place by a hair. I had a crupp cannon over mine, held in place by heaven knows what. "'How did you get out of it?' queried Hopkins. "'Summon the fiend.' "'What, summon that deadly green thing before those men, and change places with him in the presence of witnesses? Oh, I fancy not. I have been a complete hallmarked fool in many respects, Hopkins, but my idiocy never went as far as that.' the only thing left for me to do was to acquiesce in nine things that those fellows said, and look doubtful at the tenth, and say I didn't know about that. My inherent love of compromise, and my ingenuity in that direction, stood me in good stead upon that occasion. It was a narrow squeak, but I got through all right. The savants went back to Edinburgh somewhat disappointed, I presume, with the new sun on the scientific horizon. And you ought to have seen how the fiend laughed when I told him about it the next time I saw him. He fixed it all right, however, by sitting down and writing a letter to my late visitors and answering every one of their questions and asking them a few additional ones to answer which i fancy put them to their trumps after making me famous as scientist novelist and lawyer the fiend induced a political bee to enter my cap and one day after an absence of a week from my body during which period of time i was utterly in the dark as to its whereabouts i was appalled to see it reel in at the door in a maudlin state that revolted me "'Well,' I said, as soon as I was able to speak, "'what new disgrace is this you have put upon me? "'Am I to make my mark now as an inebriate? "'Or is this simply a little practical joke you are putting upon my sensibilities? "'If it is the latter, it is a mighty poor joke.' "'No,' returned the fiend, who I am pleased to say showed some sense of shame "'at the plight he had got me into this time. "'No, it is not a practical joke, nor do I wish to ruin your reputation for sobriety.' I regret this apparent liquidation of your system quite as much as you do. Not because I care what others say, though. It is because I find it much harder to manage your body under these present circumstances. When one leg wants to go dancing down pall mall, and the other evinces a strange desire to walk gravely off in the direction of Scotland Yard, it is a most difficult thing for a mind not thoroughly in sympathy with either of them to drive them down the strand in that modest, unassuming fashion which alone enables one to avoid police supervision i've had the devil's own time with this weak course of yours and if i had known how abominably light-headed and airy-legged a little strong drink made you i never should have had you stand for parliament stand for parliament i cried aghast at the new honour which was being thrust upon me have i been standing for parliament (laughs) well not exactly laughed the fiend you've been sort of held up for parliament you haven't been able to stand up without wobbling for five days In fact, not since you tried to do your duty by your constituency and take a little something at your own expense with a few rounds of doubtful voters. You were nearly defeated, my boy, because of your disgusting inability to cope with the flowing bowl. But I managed to pull you through. The temperance people voted to a man against you, but the other interests stood by you pretty well, and you now represent your old neighbours in— My old neighbours, I moaned, have i been made to appear in my old neighbours in the light of a dissipated politician when all my life long i had been known to them as a sober don't dwell on that point my good fellow interrupted the fiend forget it in forgetfulness of what you have been and in consideration of what you have become lies happiness by the way have you a mother living yes i answered numb with anxiety for fear of what was coming you haven't disgraced me in her eyes have you oh no returned the fiend but a lady claiming to be your mother visited me during the campaign and was very indignant because i failed to recognize her that cost you some votes but not enough to change the result she didn't look a bit like you and i was afraid the opposition was putting up some game on us so i just laughed her off you you laughed her off you mean to tell me i stammered that when my mother came to my political headquarters to see her son He refused to recognize her, and laughed her off. "'Oh, come,' said the fiend indignantly, "'don't get angry. Remember one thing, please. You are now a member of Parliament, a great lawyer, a famous scientist, a novelist, and an orator. It is I who have made you so, and if you don't like what I have done, we'll call the arrangement off, and you can make a spectacle of yourself in the eyes of the world. I hate an ingrate. You couldn't expect me to know a lady whom I never even saw before.' and when I have a big scheme on foot, I don't intend to have it spoiled for want of caution. If I made you seem an undutiful son, I am sorry for it, and will strive to make amends next time I meet your mother. I'll write a formal apology if you desire, but I don't wish to hear any more of your sentimental nonsense. Much has to be sacrificed in achieving greatness, and you have got therewith just about as little personal inconvenience as any man in history. Stop your snivelling, or I'll desert your cause, and what that means even you can grasp with these words concluded the spirit he departed and left me to sleep off the effects of a seven days campaign in which my moral welfare had been sacrificed to the thirst of at least four hundred doubtful voters credited with a seat in parliament i found my name debited with the crime of intemperance lack of self-respect and a gross affront to my own mother a fine record for one week in which in my own consciousness I was unable to recollect doing anything that could not have been done with propriety by a candidate for canonization. (laughs) ejaculated Toppleton, deeply moved by the horror of the weary spirit's story. "'It strikes me that canonization, in the form in which it was used on the sepoys in fifty-seven, would be mild punishment for that nile-green brute that got you into this. "'To tell you the truth, Sally, the fearful justice of your cause is almost enough to make me withdraw entirely.' I should hate to be called upon to prosecute a defendant of the nature of your verdant visitor. End of chapter 8